0: Now if you're new or if you've been here a while, I want to begin my time this morning with you just explaining where we've been in the book of Galatians because we're right in the middle of a series. We're jumping right into the heart of what Paul's argument is, if you will, Um, and we are in Galatians chapter 3. So there's been a lot that's happened already. So let me just summarize where we've been. So far, what we've seen in this letter that Paul wrote to the Galatian church is that there is the true gospel and then there is the false gospel which had taken captive so many members of this congregation. The members of this church had grown convinced that in order to be a true Christian, you must adhere to the Old Testament law. As we read through this letter, we start to get a lot of insight into what they believed. We see that it's pretty clear. They were teaching that in order to be a true Christian, you must be circumcised. In order to be a true Christian, you must keep the Sabbath. You must keep the kosher laws. In other words, true Christians must, in essence, take on a Jewish identity first. Right? They're focusing on the elements of the law that would distinguish Jew from Gentile, or to put it another way, Jewish identity from all other identities. And they're saying, if you want to be a Christian, you need to accept the Jewish identity first in order to come to Christ. And as we've seen throughout the course of our study in this book, Paul, uh, not to mention God, have a problem with this. There is a problem that Paul points out over and over again, and it's this. If you begin to depend on even the the smallest aspect of the law in order to attain righteousness, if you begin to depend on your own works, even if it's only in a small area of your life, in order to attain access to God's presence, you are damning yourself because you are submitting yourself to the entirety of the law. Paul makes this point in chapter 3, verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. By depending on yourself, or by depending on any aspect of the law for the sake of righteousness, you are actually submitting to the entirety of the law. That's what's happening in this church. I have um, a son who's two and a half years old, and he likes to play with Mega Blocks. If you don't know what a megablock is, it's like a two-year-old version of Legos. Just a big block that you stick together. And you know, he likes, he likes it when I play mega blocks with him and so I'll build him like a plane, right? So that he can take the plane and fly it around the house or pretend to do so, right? He just holds it and runs around. Um, well, you know, sometimes when I'm playing with my son, he will look at me and he'll have some mega blocks in his hand and he'll say no mine," when I try to help him. So I'll say, okay, fine, you know. You do you and I walk into the kitchen and I let him try to figure it out as I'm helping my wife with dinner or something like that. And in that moment, all of my son's hopes for building this megablock plane are gone, right? Because he's two. He might be able to put one block on top of another, but he can't actually construct this plane all by himself. In fact, he doesn't merely need my help No, he needs me to actually build the entire plane for him. He has no ability. He doesn't have the motor skills. He doesn't doesn't have the concept of imagining a plane and then taking these little blocks and forming them and fashioning them into a plane. He can't do it from start to finish. He cannot do it. He doesn't understand that when he says, no, my plane, I do it. He doesn't get that in that moment. You know, that's kind of what's going on in the Galatian church. They're looking at God... And they're saying, You know, God, I got this. You did your part. You sent your son and everything. Uh, but let me take it from here. You just watch as I build this beautiful structure of righteousness for your sake. They're trying to build righteousness all on their own. God says, Have at it. Now you have to obtain righteousness according to every aspect of the law. Good luck it's not going to happen. And that's why Paul has such a serious demeanor in this letter. This is why his attitude is so serious. He's not coming to this church happy-go-lucky because they've abandoned the gospel. He's coming to them with a rod of iron, calling them to repentance You see, in the same way that my son cannot build this plane, this church cannot build their own righteousness. We cannot build our own righteousness. We don't merely need God's help to build this beautiful structure of righteousness. No, we need him to actually come and do it for us. And that's the message of the gospel. That's what we've seen so far in the message of Galatians. But there is a tension that this leaves us with. And the passage that we're going to talk about this morning helps us to alleviate the tension. Here's the tension. If righteousness comes not through the law, but through faith, if attaining God's promises comes not through the law, but through faith in Christ, then why give us the law in the first place? What's the point of the law? That's the first question that Paul is going to address in our passage. So let me begin by reading our passage. It's a long passage. Um, I've been critiqued for reading too quickly. I apologize if that's the case this morning. I will try not to do so. So follow along with me. Galatians 3 verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it, is no long, or it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. It is So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is now neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offsprings, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, also we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So there's a lot going on in this passage. This is a big text. There's a lot going on here. Paul's logic is not necessarily easy to follow. So I want to offer a quick overview of what's going on here before we really dive in. Essentially, what we see are two primary sections going on here. There are two sections in this passage. The first addresses the question, what is the purpose of the law? Why did God give the law? And what we'll see is there, there are two answers to that question. First, God gave the law in order to offer guidance for sinners in need of guidance. And the second reason God gave the law was so that we might sense our slavery to sin and recognize our need for a savior. Now, this leads to the second question our passage is gonna discuss. If we are slaves to sin, then how in the world do we escape that slavery and become heirs of God? So those are the two questions our passage is going to discuss. First, what is the purpose of the law? And second, how do we find freedom from our slavery under the law? So let's address our first question. What is the law's purpose? This is important, especially in light of the fact that Paul has just spent so much time telling us that salvation doesn't come through the law, right? He spends all this time telling us what the law doesn't do, which leads us wondering, okay, then what's the purpose? What, what was the purpose of this in the first place? You know, for many people in this church, in, in the Galatian church, they would have found this to be a major mental shift, when thinking about the purpose of the law. Paul is taking everything they thought they knew about the law and he's flipping it on its head. Have you ever had that sort of a moment where someone comes in and and tells you something about this thing that you thought you knew so well? And after they tell you that something about the thing that you thought you knew so well, you realize, you know what? I totally misunderstood this thing I thought I knew so well. You know the other day my wife and I we had one of the guys from Kairos, our college ministry he came over to spray for bugs he's a he does a, he's an exterminator and he was spraying for spiders because spider season has been horrible and there are webs everywhere right and uh, after he sprays, he comes inside and he gave us this piece of information that I'll say this for my wife it changed her life. she's far more afraid of bugs than I am and so for her, when he shared this bit of information for, her, it just was like a new revelation, right? And he told her uh, that Windex is like the ultimate bug killer. And we were both just like, really, Windex? Like, you can use Windex to like kill tarantulas? He's like, oh yeah, in California we have all these regulations. You can't can't, like get like really toxic stuff in our bug spray. You got to use Windex because that stuff will really kill tarantulas. Oh wow, that's really, really good to know. So, you know, all of a sudden... Our entire understanding of Windex has just been, you know, has gone through a revolution. Um, You know, in a lot of ways, but in far more significant ways. That's what's going on in this Galatian church. It's as though they're saying, wait a second, we thought we understood the purpose of the law, and you're coming in and telling us something completely different. You see, for my wife and I, when it comes to the Windex, our understanding of Windex, it was kind of augmented We were like, oh, it has more purposes than we realized. Paul, though, he's coming to this church and he's saying, you don't need to augment your understanding of the law. You need to actually completely shift it. You're completely missing the point of this thing. And so this would have been a big deal. It would have dumbfounded this church. They thought they had it right. And yet their entire understanding of the Old Testament law was off center. You know, we see this in chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. Paul, he gives us this everyday illustration to make his point, to explain the true purpose of the law. And first what he does is he continues on this trail of saying, this is what the law doesn't do. And he, he compares uh, the law and God's covenant with Abraham to a human will, like a will that you would write at the end of your life. And so in verse 15, here's what he says. He says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man made covenant or will, depending on what version you have, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. In the English, depending on the version you have, you might not see this, but um, in Greek, the, this word can be translated as either a will or as a covenant. And Paul is kind of doing like a little play on words. He's talking about a human will in order to make a point about God's covenant with Abraham. Does that make sense? Okay, so he says, even with a human-made will, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. In other words, you can't change the will once it is in play. You can't come back from the dead and say, you know what? I don't like the way you're spending my money. Let me completely change the terms of this inheritance, you don't get my money, right? I mean, for some of us, we're kind of like, man, I wish my parents would do that, my sibling over here, spending all my money. Um, Maybe just a little bit, right? Maybe not. Obviously, though, that can't happen, right? You can't come back after the promise has been made, after the covenant has been brought into effect, or after a will has been written, and change it after it has already come into play. That's, That's not the way it works, you can't change the terms of the will at that point. So now Paul's going to compare that situation with God's promise to Abraham. He says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. You see what he's saying? He's saying God's covenant with Abraham It came 430 years before the law. God made all of these promises to Abraham and to Abraham's offspring. And now you're saying that the way to attain those promises is by keeping the law. And he's saying, listen, the promises were made well before the law was ever given. So you're misunderstanding the purpose of the law. God never gave the law as a means by which we might attain God's promises. God never gave the law to be a means by which we might attain righteousness. That wasn't ever the point of the law. You know, Paul makes this really subtle remark. He says, now the promise was made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say offsprings, so as to refer to many, but it refers to one. And you're kind of going... Paul, what in the world are you getting at? Like, <laughs> Plural versus singular, okay? Big deal. Um, here's what he's saying, though. He's saying, ultimately, God made this promise to Abraham and to the ultimate offspring of Abraham, Jesus. So even when God made the Abrahamic covenant, his point was always to grant these promises through the purpose of, person of Christ, His point is that if you want to attain access to these promises, it's not through the law. It has always been intended that you would receive these promises through the person of Jesus. And that is wonderful news because God's promises are not received through our fickle obedience. Instead, they are received through the steadfast faithfulness of Jesus. He is the one who has attained God's promises, and he has attained God's promises for our sake. But this all, even though this is wonderful news, it still leaves us with a question. Okay, then what is the purpose of the law? Back to the point in verse 19, where Paul says, why then the law? Now, I don't know about you, but I'll speak for myself. I typically Don't like wake up in the middle of the night and just start thinking, you know, why did God give his law in the first place? You know, even pastors don't have those sorts of conversations with themselves. Um, And I I imagine none of you have had this conversation with yourself. It probably doesn't keep you up at night just wondering, why would God give the law? But think about it. Think about a first century Jew who's coming into contact with Christ for the very first time this actually would have been something that they would think deeply about. It would have, Let's step into their shoes. This is something that they would have found problematic. This is something that they would have been questioning. Think for a moment. All of your life, you lived under the law. All of your life, you have sought, to the best of your ability, to live in accordance with the law. You show up at the synagogue every single Saturday. You've never tasted lobster in your life you're kosher. Um, All of your children have been circumcised without exception on the eighth day. And now Jesus comes and he says, your righteousness does not come through the law. In fact, those Gentiles who are joining your church, the way they join your community is not by observing the Sabbath, keeping kosher, Uh, being circumcised, that's not the means by which they join your community. You get the picture? If you're in that sort of scenario, this is going to prove to be a complicated issue. You're going to have a lot of questions. You're thinking, why did you give the law in the first place if this is not how we live as the people of God? Well, here's where we get to Paul's point. There are two reasons God gave the law. The first one is a positive use. There's a positive use of the law. He he gave the law in order to offer helpfulness and to offer guidance to sinners in need of, of help. Verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Verse 24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. You see, the law was given so that the people of God might have some sort of direction as to how they were to live their life. It was meant as a guide. You know, if you've ever been around a toddler, I think you start to realize that like we as human beings, we desperately need guidance, right? A two-year-old is living and breathing proof of that. As I've said, I have a two-year-old, and I've come to know this quite well. You know, if you do not give guidance to a two-year-old, then, um, you know, prophetic word, funeral in your near future, right? Like, they are destined to kill themselves. Like, they just do crazy things. They jump off stuff. They don't realize that what they're doing is going to get them in all sorts of trouble. They play with knives. They stick them in their mouth. They don't realize that these sorts of things are dangerous. They need all sorts of guidance. And the same thing is true for human beings, especially when it comes to our spiritual state. We need God's guidance. We are destined to kill ourselves, spiritually speaking. And that's what the law does. It gives us guidance. And there is a question, I think, for Christians we have, like, okay, so when I read the Old Testament law, then what, what do I do with it? Like, what part of God's law am I supposed to keep as a Christian, if it does offer guidance, right? I mean, this is a bit of a rabbit trail, but hopefully it's helpful. Um, when you read the Old Testament, maybe, maybe you're like me and you find some of these things confusing. You're reading it and you're going, I don't know what I'm supposed to take away from this. Again, like the lobster point. Do I not eat lobster? Uh, I hope that's not the point. The law is complex, right? There are commands here that that were literally given, not for moral reasons necessarily, but actually to make the people of Israel distinct from the other nations. right? There's a a, a distinguishing factor to the law. It was meant to, to make the people of God unique from the other nations, right? To abstain from crab meat, it's not a moral code. No, it's a, it's a means of, of distinguishing God's people from those who were around them. But there are laws driven by moral principles. And in those cases, I would say Christians are still called to keep the law, not as as we've said over and over, not in order to prove yourself to God or something like that. No, we're called to keep the law because it's, it's meant to be a guide for us. It's meant to be helpful for us. It's meant to be our, our creator's instruction manual for us. That's, that's what God's moral code is for. I think this is important because sometimes when you read the book of Galatians, you start to think, you know what, the mo- morality is like totally unimportant in Paul's mind. He doesn't care about the way you live. All he cares about is faith in Jesus. That's not true. That's not Paul's point in this letter, as we'll see in chapter 5 especially. Paul's point is not to say that the law is unimportant. He's saying the law cannot save, and so stop living as if it can. That's the point. So, When you read the Old Testament law and you're trying to figure out what do I do with this, the easiest way to figure out what do you do with this particular command, you go and see if that is repeated in the New Testament. If the law is repeated in the New Testament, then there's a good chance, 99.99% of the time, that that is a moral code that God has intended for the Christian to follow. Okay, back to the main trail. Done chasing rabbits. The law offers guidance, but it also also has a negative use. The law does have a negative use, and this is what I mean it shows us our need for a savior. The law shows us that we are by nature slaves of sin and that we desperately need someone to come in and change us. Verse 21 of chapter 3 Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, for if a law had not been given that could give life, or for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So his logic is a a little tricky to follow, but essentially what he's saying here is that the purpose of the law is to point out sin, to show you your need for a Savior. The law is meant to to not provide us with righteousness, but to show us that we need a foreign righteousness. The law is not to justify us. The law is meant to show us we need justification from outside of us. That's what the law is intended to do. It comes and it it creates an equal playing field. It shows us, each and every one of us, that self-pride is wretched. It shows us that there is no way of earning God's favor. The law comes and shows us our desperate need for a savior, our desperate need for rescue. Look at verses 25 through 29. Here we see that because the law shows that everyone is under sin, Christ came to redeem everyone under sin. Verse 25, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Regardless of your background, regardless of your gender, regardless of your nationality, the law shows everyone is under sin, which is why the gospel comes and offers salvation to everyone who is under sin. No distinction. For a church now that's focusing on the particular components of the law which are meant to distinguish Jews from everyone else, this is a message that they need to hear. If they're set on telling people, you need to become a Jew in order to become a Christian, they need to hear this. The law was not meant to prioritize the Jewish people as though they are more important than other people groups. The law was actually meant to show the Jews, you are just like other people groups, you are sinful at heart, you need rescue. You need God to come in and intervene. You know, when you read the prophets or when you read Moses' writing, this is why we see this phrase come up over and over again where God is looking at Israel and he's saying, I didn't choose you because you're great. I didn't choose you because you're mighty. I didn't choose you because you're numerous. I chose you to show my greatness. You see that over and over again throughout the Old Testament. And the reason you see that is because God's intention all of the time was to show Israel You're not better than anyone else. I've just chosen you in order to show the nations my kindness and my greatness and my grace. That was the intention that God had in choosing Israel and in giving them the law. And now, with the end of the law, as Christ has come, now salvation is being shown to all people. There is no distinction between the Jew and the Gentile. Not in the church. God is showing salvation to all. If you are in Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, whether or not you are a physical descendant of Abraham. And the reason you're in Abraham, Abraham's offspring is because like Abraham, you have faith. You have faith in God. In other words, your access to the promises of God is not rooted in yourself. It's rooted in the person of Jesus. Maybe you're here and you're new to this whole idea of Christianity. Let me assure you that becoming a Christian is not about who you are. It's actually about who Jesus is. It's all about who Christ is and what he has done. Maybe you are coming here and you have a sense of pride. You're thinking of yourself as more important than others because of things you've accomplished or the way you live your life or the amount of money you've made the gospel comes in and says, no, we're all on an equal playing field here. Maybe you're here and you're on the other end of the spectrum, and you've come with a deep sense of shame. You're looking around you saying, I don't think this whole thing, this whole Christianity thing is for me. It's not for people like me. I, 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 don't, I don't really belong here. I don't belong with these people. I, I don't, I, I'm not the type of person God would choose. You see, when Jesus came, though, He showed grace and he showed kindness to all types of people. He reached out to the strong and to the weak, the rich and to the poor, the significant and the insignificant. And when he did that, showing no distinction, he showed that all people, regardless of their situation, are in need of salvation, and he showed that all people have access to God's salvation. That's the good news of the gospel. So we have seen the purpose of the law, it came to guide us and it came to show us our, our need of a savior. That's what the does, or that's what the law does. But with that said, we are at a place now where we have a new problem. This is where Paul's logic starts going. He realizes that there is another question that this prompts: If the law enslaves sinners? how do sinners then find freedom? That's his logic moving into chapter 4. That's the second question. How do we actually obtain freedom from the law? How do we actually go from being in a state of slavery to sin and to death and to condemnation to being a a co-heir with Christ, being a, a member of God's family? That's where the passage is heading. Now, Paul uses another illustration here to make his point. And let me just point out that it's kind of (laughs) weird, just to be honest. It's kind of hard to follow his logic. So let me do my best to explain what he's really getting at here. He begins the point in verse 1 of chapter 4. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from the slave, though he is the owner of everything but he is under guardians and managers until the, day, uh, the date set by his father. Here's, the, here's what he's saying, essentially. In the first century, a household slave was comparable to children in the home. Even the heir, the one who was gonna receive all of the inheritance. The slave, in, in this sense specifically, was no different than the child. And he says they're no different in the sense that both of them have a guardian. Both of them have have masters, right? The slave has a master, has a guardian. The child, even the heir, has a master, has a guardian. Even though the slave has no inheritance in this sense, the slave is comparable to the heir. But this similarity would only last until the father appointed a time and gave the inheritance to the heir. So let's keep reading. Verse 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So let me flesh this out for a second. Those under the law are compared to slaves. The heir here is compared to Jesus, And the the guardian here is compared to the law. The slave and the son, the heir, are both responsible for obeying the guardian. The slave, however, cannot do that because slavery to sin. Jesus, on the other hand, as the heir obeys the law perfectly, he obeys the master perfectly, And then, because he has obeyed the master perfectly as the heir, he then, as the father sees fit, receives the father's inheritance. Receives all of the inheritance. Which goes back to chapter 3, where Jesus is called the true offspring of Abraham. You see, Jesus has secured all the promises God made to Abraham. And he did so by being the obedient son. You see, in in the promises of Abraham, basically what's going on is God is reversing the curse of Genesis 3. The curses that we read about in Genesis 3, with the promise to Abraham, God is reversing it. And so how do we get into that reversal of the curse? It's through the air, through the Son who was obedient to the law, who was not affected by the curse, who overcame the curse and then received the promises of God. You see, one of the greatest mysteries in all of this, in my mind, is the fact that our slavery to the law, our slavery to sin, was so profound and so strong that God had to come in human flesh in order to ransom us from our slavery to sin. That is the depth of my sin, that is the depth of your sin. You couldn't just muster up a little bit of strength or effort and overcome that. You couldn't just pull up your bootstraps and try to do this on your own. Again, the two-year-old trying to build a plane, not going to happen. You need someone to come in and do this for you. In comes Christ. Our slavery to the law was so profound and so deep-rooted that the only one capable of breaking those chains was God himself. Verse 4, chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Jesus came as the perfect offspring of Abraham who lived under the guardian and he obeyed perfectly. And he did not only receive the inheritance for himself, then he looked at these slaves and he said, I want them to be co-heirs with me verse 5, God sent forth his son to redeem those who were under the law so that they might receive adoption as sons. So he ransoms the slaves, enables them to receive adoption as sons, verse 6, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son is, than an heir through God. What this means is that we get to experience all of the benefits of the Abrahamic promise, the reversal of the curse, the access to God, the entrance into the eternal promised land. We get that because Christ purchased it for us. We are no longer slaves to the law. And because we are no longer slaves to the law, we don't have to look forward to the condemnation that we rightly deserve. Instead, we now become heirs of God's promise. The benefit of living in the eternal promised land and God's presence has been granted to us Because of what Jesus has done for us. This means that we cannot fall victim back into this mindset that we need to earn our way to God. We need to submit ourselves to this yoke of slavery yet again so that we might prove ourselves to a holy God. It's not going to happen. Again, as we sang earlier, this God, he reigns on the throne. He's utterly distinct from every single one of us in this room. Our sin prevents us from entering into his presence. We need something to fundamentally change about us. In comes Christ, transforms us from slaves of sin into obedient heirs of God. So don't submit back to the yoke of slavery. And, and I, I don't know where, where you're coming from this morning. Maybe you're here and you are hearing this and you're thinking, you know, that is far different from what I've heard about faith and Religion, maybe, maybe you're here from a Muslim background and, and you've been told all of your life that if you want God to hear you, you need to turn east, face Mecca, get on your knees and pray five times a day. The message of Christ, however, is God does not look at you because of your strict regimen of daily prayer. God does not look at you with favor because your knees are calloused. That's not the way God operates. God listens because Christ has brought us into the family of God. God listens because Christ has earned God's ear for us. Maybe you grew up Catholic and all of your life you were taught that if you want to receive forgiveness, you need to to participate in the confessional. And so you thought that God's unbound forgiveness is tied to you taking a trip to a priest. Yet God's forgiveness is not dependent on your trip to the confessional. You might sit across from a priest separated by a screen seven days a week confessing every sin you can possibly think of. But if you have not come to the great high priest who sits at the right hand of God, that trip to the priest is going to be nothing. Maybe you've grown up in a church like ours. Grown up here maybe. And you have begun to think that God disproves of you when you don't perform for him. Thinking to yourself, you know what? I didn't read my Bible this morning. What does God think of me now? (laughs) You're a young mom. You have a a kid. You also have a job. And you wake up in the morning to bring your kid to school. You realize he's sick. You're thinking, well, I still have to get to work. And i got to bring my son to. to You don't read your Bible. What are you thinking now? (laughs) Is God condemning you because of that? No. God's love for you and his approval of you are not dependent on you. They are dependent on the person of Jesus. Now, maybe you're here and you're, you're in another category. Maybe for you, you have this, this fear of confessing what's going on underneath the surface because you've been thinking that you need to hold up to this standard, you need, you need to live up to this standard, you need other people to approve of you, they need to see you living up to this standard. If I, if I let people know what's actually going on underneath the surface, I won't have a chance at this whole Christianity thing. That's not what the gospel is about. Don't submit yourself to that sort of law of slavery. Your freedom from the law ought to inform you that you can confess. You can admit that there is everything wrong with you. And you are free to do that. Ultimately because your salvation is not dependent on your perfection, it's dependent on Christ's. That is the beauty of the gospel. Though your sin deserves condemnation, Christ's righteousness has covered that. He took your condemnation, and now we don't have to be slaves of this mentality that we can't confess the sin that resides in our hearts, because let's be honest, there is sin that resides profoundly within us. We need to confess our sin. We need to recognize that our hope is not in ourselves. When we confess, we are actually making a declaration that I don't depend on myself. I depend wholly on the person of Jesus. Let's pray. God, um, we uh, we recognize our inadequacies. We recognize that though the chains of this slavery have been broken so often, we want to submit yet again to those chains. Help us to resist that. Help us to walk in the freedom of the gospel which enables us to enter into your presence irregardless of our sin because we have received the righteousness of Christ. I pray that as we move on from here this morning and and we move into the rest of our day, I pray that these truths would impact us and that we would walk in this freedom, the freedom of the gospel. In Christ's name we pray, amen.